Attention listeners, do you ever find yourself struggling to decide what to watch on a Saturday night when you're in the mood for horror? Or perhaps you're trying to round out your own horror film education. In either case, I'm sure you'll be able to make some great discoveries in my 10x10 Horror Watch List, featuring a breakdown of the 10 favorite horror movies from 10 renowned horror directors. We did a deep dive of the favorite horror movies from directors including Guillermo del Toro, Ari Aster, Jordan Peele, Quentin Tarantino, James Gunn, Rob Zombie, Martin Scorsese, and many, many more. Here you'll find a collection of each director's favorite horror movies, along with quotes about what they appreciated about the films, all in an easy-to-reference PDF that you can download absolutely free. Featuring a mix of well-worn classics and deep cuts, hopefully you'll discover some overlooked gems and look at old classics through new lenses. Download the 10x10 Horror Watch List for free by visiting nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. That's nicktaylor.com slash horrorguide. Welcome back to the Nick Taylor Horror Show. Jim Cummings is an American actor and filmmaker who started his career in 2016 with the short film Thunder Road, which he later extended into a 2018 feature film of the same name. You probably know him best for The Wolf of Snow Hollow, which he wrote, directed, and starred in. Wolf of Snow Hollow is definitely one of my favorite films of 2020 and was the last performance of the dearly departed Robert Forster. If you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend it. Jim's latest movie is The Beta Test, a dark comedic thriller about a hapless young man who unwillingly makes a sex pact and is thrown into a dark underworld of intrigue. Beta Test is super intriguing and surprisingly funny. Jim carries the entire movie hilariously, and no pun intended, reminds me of a young Jim Carrey. He's a super interesting recent addition to the horror world, and uh, I really can't wait to see what he does next. In any case, without further ado, here is writer, director, actor Jim Cummings. All right, Jim Cummings, great to see you. How's it going? Going well. Thank you for having me. Of course, of course. So how's the response been to beta test so far? Suspiciously good. Uh, (laughs) We've been very lucky. Um, It's gotten a 95 on Rotten Tomatoes. We're certified fresh. Great. Um, It came out in theaters on the 5th of November, uh, as well as uh, VOD in America. And it's had theatrical releases all over the world. And we're very lucky. It's been... A lot of fun. We go and screen the movie for audiences and it's kind of an out and out comedy, despite it also being very scary and having some graphic violence in it. Um, But it feels different. It doesn't feel like a Seth Rogen comedy or something like that. It's like, um, I I think it still functions as like a horror detective engine of movie. Um, But then I don't know, it feels like a crowd pleaser in a fun way. Yeah, we screened it at Fantastic Fest and that was like the most vocal crowd I've ever been in. It was really fun. That's awesome. Yeah, there's there's so much happening in the movie, though, but it doesn't feel like it's weighed down. I mean, there clearly is a, a good amount of social commentary. There is a, a, there's a thriller element. There's a horror element. There's a huge comedy element throughout, but it all just melds 
beautifully into you know very much its yeah. own thing. But I, I guess my my big question is in terms of I know you guys did the movie together, you guys wrote it and directed it and acted in it together. What were the conversations um, about tone like? Because there's a there's an interweaving of tones, but it still feels consistent. You know, it feels like a very singular vision with a very specific you know sensibility behind it. I'm sh but with two guys behind it, I'm wondering how yeah. you guys were able to align on on the tone of the movie and what the intentions were. Yeah. So yeah, it's difficult. PJ and I have been best friends for a long time. We've known, known each other for 16 years, too long. Um, and we just have the same sense of what is going to be cool. We're both Redditors. And so we have this kind of metronome that is set <laughs> for our attention span that is very quick. And so the tempo of the movie is very fast, but tonally, we know how to weave the audience's attention and their allegiance between the characters and what's happening um, just because we studied the social network a whole lot and a lot of movies like Parasite mm -hmm. where they incorporate comedy and horror and thriller and tension so perfectly and seamlessly while they're telling this story about wealth inequality. And so we just love those kinds of films where it feels like a full meal after you leave the cinema instead of brain sugar, which is what most people will get or just boring stuff. Yeah. And so, yeah, it's an epidemic. So uh, we just kind of make each other laugh in the writer's room and we know what the scenes are going to be. We have these like long form conversations that then become this Google doc with all the ideas of the scenes and then PJ mainly, but PJ and I kind of go through and organize it to what it should be as the narrative, you know, chron chronology of the story. And then when we sit down to write it, it's all out loud. And so we'll stand up with two laptops uh, and act out the scenes. And then we write down the best stuff and kind of make each other laugh and try and make something absolutely insane, like to have it be feel really big, even though it's a small budget movie. Um, and then that becomes the first draft of the script. And then we record it on this microphone. I'm talking to you through uh, all like in podcast form mm. where instead of saying uh, interior police station night, we'll say Jim walks into the police station and it kind of becomes this audio book. And then we'll put music and sound design into it so we can hear the movie and where it sucks. And then we go back into screenplay format and fix it. And we do these like kind of iron out passes based on the audio experience of the film. Whoa. And so, that's fascinating. Yeah. And so that becomes the first real like path of if the genre of fluidity and the tone is working or the tones are working in each moment, in each scene. And then we kind of hear it and then drive it to be where it needs to be if it's not there already. Oh, wow. Do you get other actors like for female voices? Do you get someone else to stand in? Um, for the last three movies, it's just been me doing it. Um, and then for, we did a TV show pilot where PJ and Dustin and I, uh, our buddy Dustin Hahn came in and we went to Big Bear and took out a cabin and kind of did the whole thing. Oh, that's cool. And then, uh, and that was fun because it's just like buddies making each other laugh. And then, but no, for the other ones, for the Thunder Road, uh, podcast, I did, you know, I played like the six-year-old girl. I play Kendall, my, mm -hmm. my daughter in the film, um, which is humiliating to listen to. But I grew up uh, listening to the Harry Potter audiobooks, and this guy, Jim Dale, plays Hagrid and Hermione in the same scene. And the brain kind of fills in the blanks. It's like, <laughs> oh, you, you can't really tell the difference if you've listened to it enough. Right, uh, right. And so I, I just kind of got used, and, used to and spoiled um, by that. And now that's how we do all of our pre-pro. That's fascinating. So I want to talk about your comedy background because I can tell that you have one. 
Um, you're hilarious, man. Um, <laughs> really, really fun and funny to watch uh, and carry a movie beautifully. Um, I feel like a big lost art for film nowadays is uh, is improv. And I could be wrong, but I'm a, I, you seem like you might have an improv background. When you look at movies like Ghostbusters and movies like Animal House, what made those movies magical is those dudes all knew improv and they were able to riff together and there's just a camaraderie and there's a magic that occurs. And I haven't seen that in a long time until I started seeing your movies like Wolf of Snow Hollow, mm-hmm. I feel like had that. So is, is, um, is improv in your back pocket or what is your comedy background like? Yeah. Um, I'm flattered to hear that. Uh, I'm yeah, I'm a big fan of Bill Murray, and I love those movies growing up. So that's incredible to hear. Um, because of the budget restraints that we have for our films, there is almost zero improvisation. Everything is meticulously done beforehand. Because um, if there is improv, it sometimes happens where the boom mic isn't in the right spot or the camera's out of focus, or the actor's out of focus, and mm-hmm. we don't really capture it. And so in order to ensure that the movie is made on the schedule and the budget that we have, we kind of have to do everything forensically beforehand. Um, so my comedy influences are like Steve Coogan playing Alan Partridge, which is the same kind of performance. Like mm-hmm. every mannerism has to be planned beforehand um, because there is in that world, the right way to tell the joke and a wrong way to tell the joke, a thousand wrong ways to tell a joke. Right. It has to be one specific way. Um, I grew up, uh, I'm not a trained actor. I'm not a trained comic. I've never done stand up. I think I'd be bad at it. I think I'd be really bad at improv. I am really bad at improv. Um, but I was totally wrong. There, <laughs> there is a, no, 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 no. But, but I, I did come through college humor and I got to work with a lot of really talented improv comics oh, nice. and um, we weren't making anything very good or they weren't, but I, that inspired me because of the credit that they were getting um, to get off the couch and make something like Thunder Road, which is all one shot, very tied down, no uh, no improv at all. Um, and that kind of started my career because I was so ambitious to prove that this way of making movies could be actually funny and important. Um, so I was surrounded by improv people and UCB, Upper Citizens Brigade was right down the street. Hmm. Um, and so that there was always this like, engine of marketing about that um, type of filmmaking. And it never really worked for me. And so I tried to bury it in the ground (laughs) with my my early stuff. Um, But no, it's it's great to hear that that it comes across as authentic um, as improv. That's that's very nice to hear. Yeah, no, for sure. So can we talk about your your first movie and how you got your first feature off of the ground? What was your sort of origin story? Yeah, so... I was a producer for about six years making music videos for a rapper named Lil Dicky and my buddy, Tony Ascenda. Um, and I was making small shorts and commercials and trying to make a living as like a line producer. And um, I was a line producer at College Humor for branded content, trying to like put Mentos and Captain Crunch into sketches. It was a bit humiliating. Um, and then I wrote the short film of Thunder Road on the drives to and from work. Um, at a 45 minute commute both ways. And then we submitted it to Sundance and it got in insanely and then it won. And then I had a water bottle tour of Hollywood. I got signed at WME and then I shook a bunch of hands and kissed a bunch of babies. Um, you could do that back in the day. Can't do that now. Uh, it's all <laughs> resume. Um, thank heavens. Uh, and then I, nothing really, it never happened. Nothing really happened. Um, And I think it was because 
when I was trying to make the feature of Thunder Road, I only needed $200,000. And you can't make a movie for that much inside of the studio system or even in the low budget Hollywood system because the producers need to make a percentage of the final budget. So if they signed on to be a producer on the thing or their production company would be a producer on the thing, it didn't matter how much money the movie was going to make globally. It meant that they weren't going to get 30% of 200 grand and that didn't mean anything to them. They needed it to be $60,000. So we ran a Kickstarter campaign for the Thunder Road feature and we raised $36,000 from the public uh, and that became the pre-production funds. I put up some money from shooting Kahlua commercials. uh, And then my buddy, Zach Parker was an executive producer and he matched how much I had put in. And then we had people reach out from around the world to buy shares of the movie because they couldn't back the Kickstarter campaign in time. So they found out about it too late and that's how we gap financed the movie. So we shot the Thunder Road feature for 190 grand. Obviously now it's probably grossed a million dollars or something like that. And we were able to make it with our friends in Austin, Texas, and just kind of scrap things together. And then um, after the movie started to become successful, Orion Pictures reached out and said, we we're trying to green light, you know, more elevated horror film, um, independent films. Um, would you have anything? And I had written this script before I had written Thunder Road uh, about a werewolf that I thought was quite good. And then uh, they said, yeah, let's do it. And so we made that film for 10 times the budget of Thunder Road. And I was very nervous about it being any good because um, I'd written it before Thunder Road. So I spent you know, six months making the script better, um, not mediocre. Um, and it became The Wolf of Snow Hollow and I'm very proud of it. And then we went back to making movies the other way um, after doing Wolf of Snow Hollow. So the beta test, we got financed from a crowd equity platform called WeFunder. Hmm. So we have 255 investors from around the world that bought shares in the movie in the same way that we gap financed Thunder Road. Interesting. Wow. That's great. And it sounds like you're in a, in a, in a pretty good place right now where it's, your movies feel really individualistic. In other words, they feel like they can only be made you know, by you. Which I feel like if for a director, it's good to have that sort of a signature. You know, I can tell that the same guy who did Wolf of Snow Hollow did beta test. Is there any sort of, and I feel like it's unconscious for a lot of directors, but any sort of sensibilities that you are trying to convey? Or does it all just kind of come out naturally in terms of your your signature as a director? Um, I think it depends on the project. We, we knew that Zod- that like the Wolf of Snow Hollow had to be different from Thunder Road. And I wanted to do a bit of like memories of murder, Zodiac vibes as a comedy, mm-hmm. as like a detective engine then was also very funny um, and with stupid characters. And then with um, the beta test, we wanted it to be sleek. We wanted the opening to feel like Girl with a Dragon Tattoo. And then the rest of the film you know, narratively to feel a bit like Chinatown Mm. or Eyes Wide Shut um, or Fifty Shades of Grey and then also have it be funny. And so, like, I think that kind of genre fluidity is the thing that makes our movies unique. Um, And the lead actor obviously helps for the last three. Um, But but yeah, no, it really depends on the story. Like, the new film that PJ and I are writing, we don't act in. And so we're writing it as this kind of love letter to... I guess like Hayao Miyazaki as a comedy and um, and like There Will Be Blood and P.T. Anderson and stuff like that. So like, I yeah, it really depends on the narrative that we're trying to tell and what is going to help the audience get carried along through that story. Gotcha. Cool. I feel like there, when you peel beneath the layers of the beta test, there's a lot of, a lot of really interesting 
social commentary might not be the right word, but um, I I don't know. I got so much out of just the kind of frustration of kind of speech nowadays and how you are so afraid to say anything for fear of offending one person or another. And I feel like you guys confronted that without doing it so overtly that you would, you know, offend, you know, the woke community or anything like that. But I don't know. I feel like you guys just pulled that line in a way that was really resonant, but it was not overt, which I thought was was pretty fascinating. And I'm just wondering what was uh, what was your take on that and, and doing that? Yeah, I mean, it's it's you can't avoid it. I mean, it's very obvious that speech is being curtailed these days. And I find that very funny because, you know, if you can, that's what comedy is. It's setting up a social standard and then having someone break through it like Borat, where it's like when a, a culture has become more conservative uh, socially or like there are rules to society, as soon as you break them, you know, you can get people laughing. So it's like they always say laughter is the mind sneezing. It's like, it's uncontrollable. If you can do something, you can win over the crowd because we all know what's happening socially right now. And so, so really like my character in the film acknowledges the kind of, um, you know, social conservatism um, in the film. Where he's like, he's like, you know, because of the new rules, the agency in the country is going like all of that stuff. But we wanted it to be funny. We wanted the audience to laugh at that guy because the movie was so raucous. You can kind of, it, it proves that you can do whatever the hell you want. But it is shocking that like this movie is one of the only movies recently that I've seen that has a sex scene in it. And mm. like that's that's, uh, I guess, a telltale sign about the sanitization of the film. And um, I, th I think that it's a great place to be in independent film. You can make movies that touch on, you know, the based base ideas of audiences and entertain people and um, and they can watch it from the privacy of their home. They don't have to say that they ever saw the movie, but they can enjoy it. Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, on the one hand, you would think that there's so much censorship happening right now, which there is, but the for the benefit for filmmakers is now you can, you know, shock people with sex scenes and, you know, social commentary all over again. Whereas, yeah. Because Barack, people are getting censored. Barack Obama said something about that. The president said... Um, that when the interview came out, he had to he had to talk about it because Sony got hacked and it was all I mean it was, it was an attack on one of the biggest com companies in America, and Obama got up and he said it was a foreign power that is attacking us, um, and it's a Seth Rogen and James Franco comedy. And he's like this is ridiculous, it's happening. And he goes, but the real scary thing is not a foreign power being pissed at you know making a movie. Chaplin went through all this with the Great Dictator mm -hmm. and Hitler. Um, but the scary thing is that it's going to frighten Americans that they can't do that, that they can't use the full breadth of the First Amendment and that they would kowtow to um, stress and anxiety that if you would say anything against a foreign power, they might attack you for it. Um, and he said, that's the real frightening thing. And he said that on the podium the first wow. day that he had a, at a press conference. And I thought that was really profound and an important thing to remember. That's huge. Well, on that note, Jim, real pleasure talking to you. Huge congratulations on the new movie. It was, it was really awesome. Uh, before we go, any parting advice or wisdom for those aspiring filmmakers out there? Um, never be made to feel inadequate. It's all bullshit. Nobody knows what they're doing. And if you can do it on your own, even if it's not a very glamorous production behind the camera, if it looks good on camera, you'll be fine. Wise words. Thank you so much. All right, here as always are some key takeaways from this conversation with Jim Cummings. 
Number one, keep on hustling. Jim wrote his first film, the short for Thunder Road, on the commute to his job, and it got into Sundance, and it won. A lot of would-be filmmakers somehow feel the need to do something extreme, like quit their job, before they give themselves their permission or validation to embark on their movie-making career. This isn't always viable, and it isn't always sustainable. And there are many cases of filmmakers with day jobs who get their first movies made while they're doing something else. And that's okay. What matters is that you're constantly pursuing it. There's this metaphor about two trains where you're on one train that represents your current job and adjacent to you is the train that you'd rather be on representing your real passion. The more fuel you shovel into that other train, the faster it will catch up to the train you're on. And once it does, you'll know when to jump. Number two, a natural extension of number one. Even when you get signed, still keep on hustling. After Jim's short one at Sundance, he got signed at the very prestigious agency, WME. Seemed he'd arrived, but after doing an extensive water bottle tour all over Hollywood, talking to many producers and studios, he had no offers. Unfortunately, this is the rule and not the exception for many directors who are signed, even to major agencies. You can enter a desert and you can waste years at a time just sitting on your hands waiting for your agency to bring you something. I've heard of this happening to more filmmakers than I would even care to admit. Once you're signed, it's critical that you keep that indie spirit going and you get your projects made. Typically, agencies make a cut of the total budget of a project, so they're usually less interested in pursuing smaller budgeted indies. That's okay because you don't always need them. Despite being signed with WME, Jim bootstrapped, kickstarted, and then equity funded his first feature, cobbling together about $200,000. Only after making that movie did Hollywood really come knocking, and he was given the opportunity to make Wolf of Snow Hollow for a couple million dollars. The lesson here is to never rest on your laurels and to keep pushing your movies with or without your agency. Number three, find a way to pre-visualize or pre-experience the tone and trajectory of your movie. Jim and his writing partner, PJ, do a pretty fascinating thing with their scripts prior to shooting. They will perform the entire script, record it, score it, and then listen to it to see where the lulls are and to see what could be better. This is pretty brilliant. It's a great way to kick the tires on your own material because sometimes you need to hear the material performed or even perform it yourself to know what needs work. Sometimes, Jim will rent a cabin with his friends and make an entire weekend out of this. When you're deep in the trenches of your own screenplay, you'll likely get pretty tired of reading and rereading the same material and lose objectivity. Instead, find a way to bring it to a new platform. This can counter your screenplay fatigue while bringing a whole new perspective to your project. Anyway, guys, thank you as always for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, why not share it with your friends and family on social media? Don't forget to follow the show on Instagram at I am Nick Taylor. That's I am Nick Taylor and on Twitter at the same handle. Thanks again for listening to the Nick Taylor Horror Show.